0: Hey there, how's it going? This is James Tripp. Welcome to episode 10 of Agents of Everything. In this episode, we're going to be going into the topic of fear. Is fear your friend or is it a foe? This is the question that we want to be looking into. Before we dive into this, I want to say if you are listening to this on Apple, Spotify, or wherever, please do make sure you support this podcast if you value this podcast by Subscribing on Agents of Everything, the Substack, Agents of Everything. Go to Substack, subscribe there. It's a free subscription, but your subscription itself is a support for this work. And I would love for you to engage through the comments there, become a part of the generative community that's forming there. And if you value this as well, please do rate it on Spotify, Apple, whatever. Please do give it a good rating and share it with any friends you feel may get value from this. So we're looking at the topic of fear. Is it a friend? Is it a foe? And this is something that's very personal to me. It's been a huge thing in my life, transcending fear uh, for personal reasons. And it relates to a lot of the professional work that I do. In fact, it is relevant to all the professional work that I do, even when I'm not working explicitly on that. And I shall say why in a moment. So I'm going to give you the personal take on this. First of all, Fear is a big topic for me because it was once a massively dominant force in my life. And when it was first became a dominant force in my life, I didn't realize how much of a problem it was. It was only as I grew up and I got older that I started to see that it was stopping me from living in the world in the way that I wished to and creating the things in my life that I wanted to create. But for me, from a very young age, fear was a major thing i used to suffer from night terrors and really what this means is i would have these very vivid nightmare edit i would have these very vivid nightmares and i would awake from them and still be hallucinating i'd be seeing those horrible creatures or whatever it was in the world around me my parents would be trying to calm me down and reassure me but i could see these things were there in the room as real as anything else this created a lot of fear for me but I rather suspect that those night terrors were just a manifestation of a pervasive background fear that I had that would come out all over the show. Now, um, you know, one example is I remember the horror I used to feel when I was being left at preschool, which was in a church building. And there was something about that church building that just creeped me out. You know, maybe it was the uh, overly graphic Jesus on the cross thing or, or whatever it would be, but it really terrified me, put raw terror into the very heart of my being. And I also had a lot of fear of other people at school and this kind of thing, right? I had a lot of fear. Now, as I grew up, this evolved, if you like, or it started to manifest more in a kind of fear of other people, not of things like, you know, the, the bogeyman or ghosts or serial killers, which I used to be scared of when I was a kid. Um, as I got older, my fears became more about other people. Circumstances in the world, situations in the world. Now, in a way, even though I was very fearful and I was very much under the impression that life was not good, you know, the world was a scary place, I didn't realize I had a problem with fear at that point. I thought I had a problem with the world. It was only, I don't know, some point in my early 20s, I remember when this occurred to me because I remember the event vividly. I rushed around to my friend Andy's house and knocked vigorously on his back door and he let me in. And I said, I've just realized my entire life is dominated by fear. And you might say, as you listen to me say that, well, how could you have your whole life dominated by fear and not realize it up until that point? Well, I didn't realize it because I thought the world was a fearful place. I thought that it was full of threats and dangers and difficult, challenging, hard things, things that were going to destroy me, diminish me. This is what I thought the world was. But at that point, I don't know how old I was, 22, 23, I suddenly realized it it was me. It wasn't the world. It was me that was bringing fear to everything. And that was huge because it was having me hang back. It was having me lay low. This is the thing about fear. It moves us away from things. Now, this podcast, Agents of Everything, it's all about being able to connect into the world and create with the world okay, be in the world as a creative force, whatever, bring about outcomes that you value. This is a very, very difficult thing to do if your primary behaviors are avoidant and they are disconnecting, right? Fear disconnects us. It drives us away from, and that's not helpful if we want to connect into, we want to move into things and make differences with them. So that's the personal interest for me. And I just want to say, by the way, I did a lot from that point on in my life to decode fear, figure it out, figure out what was going on. Look at it in a variety of different ways, not all by myself, not without the input of others. I looked at different self-development systems. I worked with different cultures, all sorts of things, had a lot of influences. But my journey from then to now has very much been one of transcending fears. I'm not going to claim now that I have no threat response systems anymore, that they never trigger off, they never do anything. They're much more muted, they're much more damped down, they're much less reactive. So I'm pretty much free of the fear and anxiety, certainly in a background way, but they'll spike from time to time. In fact, just before this podcast, I got this parking fines thing going on and uh, I put in one appeal and then I had to appeal to an independent ombudsman. Um, And party is a principal thing. I don't know why I've got sucked in rather than just paying the fine, but I think it's a scam. It's a grift they're running. So there's a little part of me that's got hooked into challenging that. But I've got a thing come back in, in the email that is saying, here's the evidence that the company have provided against you. And I got a little spike at that moment, right? Threat response system kicking off. So I'm not claiming that I'm beyond fear. Okay. But for me, largely, I've certainly transcended that as a dominant force in my life. Now, I'm also going to say right here, that I work with people helping them make changes in their lives. And I work with largely two demographics, right? Two rough demographics, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's the word I'm gonna use here. And I call them the inspiration people and the desperation people. And I do this work in different places. So my private clients generally are in this inspiration place and the clients I work with through the organization Rock to Recovery UK are in the desperation place. What this means, by the way, this isn't a judgment upon anybody, the desperation clients are there because they are stuck. They are backed into a corner. They feel that life has got on top of them. They're desperate. They, are, they, des- they don't know where they're headed, what they're doing. Something's wrong and they're desperately looking for help, right? It's come to a head for them. I always say when those clients come in, why are you here and why now? And then my inspiration clients, these are the ones I work with uh, privately through my own business. These are the people that come to me because there's something they want to create in the world, and they're looking for some assistance, some backup. They're looking for a corner man, whatever it will be to help them realize that thing. So I call them the inspiration clients. Now here's the thing. With the desperation clients, fear is front and center. It's absolutely always front and center. Threat response systems kicking off like crazy. That's the big thing. And pretty much every problem, although it may be talked about in a different way, is an expression of that. Threat response systems kicking off due to perceptions about self and circumstances, right? That's a miserable way to live, by the way, right? I'm just thinking right now, as I say that, of the film Blade Runner, and at the end, the replicant Roy Batty says, this is what it's like to live in fear. Nobody wants to live in fear, regardless of what it's doing for you in your life, what it's getting you or stopping you getting, It's a miserable way to live. Now, my inspiration clients, on the other hand, they're not necessarily focused on fear, but to some degree or another, it's usually playing out. Right? It's usually playing out somehow. And um, I'm thinking of one particular client right now, and this is the client that led me to create There's a program that I created a few years ago called Beyond the Subtle Fears that some people listening to this will have engaged with. I know that much. Um, And I made this program because I had this client come in for essentially business coaching. They were looking for strategic and tactical input on how to create the outcomes they wanted to create in the world. Particularly, they wanted to raise their profile, establish themselves as a thought leader in a particular field. And they came to me for strategic and tactical input Now, the issue with this person was not that they lacked strategic and tactical information. They already had plenty of it. The issue for them was that they were simply not acting. They were laying low. They were getting caught in analysis paralysis. They were going this way, then that way. And it was all fear-driven. So what I wanted to do with them, I'm looking at that as as a professional who's there to help them move forward, what i'm seeing there is that we need to address those fears because if we don't address those fears this person's never going to be able to move fluidly with life this is a bias that i have that life flows and if we don't flow with it it will flow on without us so as soon as we get stuck locked trapped whatever shut down life flows on without us and we remain stuck right we need to loosen that to re-engage to be able to dance results out of reality. I call that non-linear generative engagement, but that is another episode. So I wanted to do this work with this client, but they just did not want to go there. And that's something that's quite often true for people. Okay, They don't want to look at their fears, particularly that's truer of the inspiration group more than the desperation group. The desperation group cannot help but look at their fears. They're being overtly stalked by them in their experience. But the inspiration group, sometimes people don't want to look at their fears because they're trying to maintain a self-image of being a very capable, very competent person. And the idea that they might be fearful is incongruent with that. So it has to be pushed away, right? They don't want to look at that. They don't want to have to admit that. So that can create a real barrier. Anyway, with this particular client, that was what I felt was going on. And I really wanted to help them. So I decided that if they didn't want that help, because they didn't, they didn't want to go there. They just wanted to stay with the strategic and tactical. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll make them an audio program, right? I'll make them a bunch of audios and I'll say, listen to this. And then I thought to myself, well, if I'm making those audios anyway, I may as well make them for the world, not just for this person. But I made them with this person in mind. And that project became what's called Beyond the Subtle Fears. Um, and that was a, a teleseminar series, it became over 20 hours of material going into transcending fears. As I say, a lot of people have engaged with that uh, and you can still get that from my jamestrip.online site, the recordings of that, if you are interested in transcending fears. But this comes out a lot with clients. Now, here's the thing. Throughout my whole time, my whole journey, looking at fear and transcending fear, there was something that always kind of bugged me. And it's like, What is going on with this fear business? It seems to me that it is a part of who we are and how we are. We human beings, we have threat response systems. We come into the world, they're not really wired up, right? But they're there, unwired, and we wire them into things through the education we receive from uh, our elders and the world around us and all of this kind of thing. And through some experiences, direct experiences as well, we wire up these threat response systems. And then we start looking at the world in terms of like often, well, there's all these threats. These things need to be avoided. And those threat response systems wired up become part of the programming that creates our destiny, I would say. So if we want to change our destiny, we have to change that wiring. So I'm looking at it, I'm going, this seems like a hindrance in a lot of ways. It's stopping me engaging with the world creatively and generatively. Why is this a good thing? Okay, in addition to that, Another thing that fear seems to do is it sometimes seems to operate to actually attract the very thing that you fear. Now, you can look at this in two ways. You can look at it uh, metaphysically, and you can go, well, you know, it's because you're vibrating on a certain energy, and it's going to attract more of these things in. Or you can look at it psychologically, right, psychosocially. If you get Richard Wiseman's book, uh, Professor Richard Wiseman's book, The Luck Factor, he talks a lot about self-fulfilling prophecies there. Right. And there's nothing weird. It's nothing to do with vibration or sympathetic magic or anything like that. It's just to do with, he explains it in terms of psychosocial systems, interactions, the way people show up, engage their behaviors, what they create, right? You get that kind of thing happen a lot. I'll give you an example of it from my own life, right? How fear creates the very thing that is feared often or can do, brings about the very thing that is feared. One of the big bits for me in my social anxiety when I was younger, was that I had a terrible fear that I would be thought of as stupid by other people. This terrible fear that I'd be thought of as stupid. And I was making a prediction. We'll talk about predictions in a moment. That If I spoke and I said something dumb, people would think I was stupid. That would be an absolutely terrible thing. Because I would be rejected, I'd be a social outcast, and I may even get evidence to prove that something I feared might be true about myself, something terrible was true, i.e. that I was stupid. So this is a terrible fear of mine. And the way this social anxiety manifested wasn't some kind of buzzing anxiety in the stomach like people might think of as anxiety. This was different. It was literally a brain shutdown. I've often described it as being like as if somebody had injected dental anesthetic into my prefrontal cortex my brain would numb up really numb up and it's just like nothing would be there it's like cotton wool would be in my mouth my brain would numb up and I'd be incapable of doing much other than sort of like disappearing into myself and maybe giving one word answers when I was asked any questions so my friend Stuart he got me a job with RAC insurance services and This job obviously meant interacting with other people, other human beings and my kind of whole social anxiety thing kicked off. My brain shut down, all of this. Remember, this is all about a fear of being judged as stupid. After about a week there, a colleague, mutual colleague of mine and my friend Stuart's, he knew her already. He'd been there a while. She'd been there a while. She said to him, she said, you know, your friend James, is he a bit slow? Is he a bit simple? And um, Stuart, jumped to my defense and said, no, 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 he's a very intelligent guy. Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate that. But it's an example of me creating the very thing that I feared. Creating the very thing that I feared. Right? And you can see how this happens. If you think about this as an example, imagine you stood in the middle of your sitting room floor or your kitchen floor or whatever, you just stood there, minding your own business, doing your own thing, lost in thought, whatever. You'll be perfectly in balance. There won't be any issue with balance going on. But now imagine that you're stood on the edge of a hundred foot tall cliff, right? What happens for a lot of people is suddenly the fear of falling messes with their equilibrium and they start feeling like wobbly, like they're going to wobble off the edge, right? It's almost like there's a force pulling them off the edge and they have to counteract that with this with stepping away from the edge, right? Which is a good idea, take action. Okay, but it's interesting that the disequilibrium, the lack of balance, the likelihood of falling, unless one steps away, was increased at that point, which seems like an odd thing. Now, this is also something that came up for me because at the same time as going on this journey for transcending fear, I was very much interested in martial arts. I was engaged with martial arts. And the martial arts that I was engaged with The ones I started in my early 20s were the Chinese internal martial arts and the Russian martial art of Sistema. Now, as I mentioned that Sistema, some people might be aware of this because it's the martial art that possibly gets more ridicule on the internet these days than ever before. Of course, when I was doing this, this was pre-YouTube and all of this, and you know, I just thought it seemed really cool. Now everybody mocks it and laughs at it. I think they misunderstand it. I'm sure they misunderstand it, but I know why they mock and laugh at it. It's not perfect. It has some loop po- some problems in its training methodology, and it also has a tendency to have cults within it. A lot of traditional martial arts do as well, though. But this, these cults can be kind of weird. However, I got a lot of benefit from this. Now, one of the things that was interesting about Sistema, and this is true of the Chinese internal martial arts, is they advocated a lot of state management. Right? They advocated being relaxed and fluid and. A- peace while you work if you were to compare this by the way Sistema was from uh russian military so it was it evolved as a system for teaching military people certain approaches to combat it certain some of the spetsnaz units use this approach it evolved out of uh sombo originally combat sombo so it was like a pragmatic thing now if you compare that to something like krav maga which is also a Sort of military system, so to speak, Uh, or it's like Mossad system or whatever, but it's this practical combative thing. Krav Maga is all about getting in touch with your aggression, you know, channeling your fear and all of this into an energy, right? It's because you're going to be fearful, so you need to harness that, you need to channel that, turn that into aggression. A lot of combative stuff is about that, taking that fear and turning it into aggression, right? And that makes sense because uh, threat, response, anger has fear underneath of it. It's the fight of fight, flight, freeze, hide, avoid, submit. Right? These are the ways the threat response system manifests. Fight, flight, freeze, hide, avoid, submit. So one school would say you can't avoid that fear. It's natural. It's part of our evolutionary heritage. You can't avoid it. So you have to learn to turn it into aggression and channel it. But the Sistema was much more about transcending the fear so that you can act with clarity of mind, right? Act with intention and intentionality, but fluidly with a clear mind. And you get this kind of debate. Well, that's not really possible. That's not really how we're wired. But one thing was absolutely clear. It. it, but one thing was absolutely clear. When you've got a clear mind and you're free from fear and you're fluid, your motor skills are better. You're more able to coordinate yourself. You're maybe more able to think fluidly in the moment. You're just more adept in engaging in the moment. And the reality-based self-defense people would say, well, that's uh, just unrealistic. The adrenaline dump is going to wipe out your fine motor skills. It's like, isn't it curious? So you're going to get an adrenaline dump that's going to make you worse physically coordinating yourself as you come into having... I'll fight. You're looking to defend yourself. That doesn't make sense. It could, it didn't make sense to me. Like, why would evolution do that to you? Why would it make you less well coordinated, less able to, you know, respond creatively? Why would it make you worse? I couldn't figure it out. Right now, I'm going to introduce an idea here from the neuroscientist lisa feldman barrett i've talked about lisa feldman barrett before she's been a big influence on me i read her book some years ago called how emotions are made and i've always said this ought to be called how experience is made not just emotions but all our experience Uh, lisa feldman barrett also has a shorter book by the way if you want a quicker introduction to her work called seven and a half lessons about the brain. I think that's what it's called. And uh, somebody bought that for me recently, so I've only read that one quite recently. One of the key tenets of Lisa Feldman Barrett's work is that our brain does not exist to think, right? You, You say to most people, what's your brain for? They go, well, it's to think. That is probably the most common answer you're going to get by quite some long way. Lisa Feldman Barrett is adamant that our brain does not exist to think it exists to orient us and move us in the world it is about action reaction action orientation it's about how we engage with the world thinking like maybe it does some of that but that's not what it's for that's not what it's about so she also points out something which has always been of great impact upon me because it fits with some elements of the change work that i do and the hypnosis work that i do she points out that that Concepts, ideas, thought—all ideas, all sense we make about the world—it's about orientating us or orienting us in the world, and it's about moving us to certain actions. But part of that orienting to the world is to redistribute what's going on within our body, right—the resources within our body. Where does the blood flow go? Where do the different, uh, you know, what which hormones get released, which um, you know, biochemicals, neurochemicals get released? right? So every thought, every idea is orienting us to the world and changing our neurophysiology in the moment. And we can feel that change. Sometimes we can feel it obviously through emotion or strong sensation, but sometimes we can learn to tune into it subtly. And this connects with the work of Eugene Gendlin, his focusing work. I'll do another podcast on that one because focusing is a big deal for me. Where we can start to use our interceptive system to feel subtle changes within our body and get clues into our deeper thinking and sense making than we might normally get that's a very useful thing we'll cover that another time but i want to stick at the moment with this idea of prediction all beliefs all sense making one lens we can look at them through is the lens of prediction we are looking to predict what happens when so i've often like one example i give of this this was a particularly interesting spooky example because i was talking to my friend john you'll hear me mention so many times in this because I speak to John literally weekly and have done for a decade and a half. So I was talking to my friend John on the phone and I was talking about this idea of prediction, right? How our ideas are fundamentally about making predictions. I said, for example, if you were holding in one hand a coffee cup and in the other hand a feather, and he said, what? And I said, if you're holding a coffee cup and a feather, he said, you know what I'm holding right now? And in one hand, he was holding a coffee cup. In the other hand, he was holding a feather, right? And he sent me a picture of this on his phone, the feather and the coffee cup, immediately to show me that this was so, which I thought was a really interesting thing. That's a point aside. Um, spooky synchronicities, though, I absolutely love them. So a coffee cup and a feather. I said, if you were to stand like on a at a third-story window and drop them out the window, my guess is you would be able to make predictions about what's going to happen based upon your understanding of coffee's cup and your understanding of a feather, right? So that's the point of understandings. We know the coffee cup's going to move faster than the feather towards the pavement or sidewalk. And when it hits it, it's going to smash into many pieces. Whereas the feather is going to remain intact, right? Those are some predictions we can make. We always are making predictions. Right. Now, I said that we come into the world with a threat response system that is unwired, unwired, and we wire it up. This is part of building the prediction engine that is our brain or our set of understandings, our worldview, whatever. So a, th- a threat-based prediction is, if this, then bad thing, right? So we're making sense of all sorts of things. In all sorts of ways. And we make sense not just of things in the world, but ourselves. So everything we make sense of, we make sense of in relation to ourself. Okay. Um, we don't make sense of it in abstract. So it's often to do with the relationship between us and the other thing. So let me give you an example. Let's say we have a hunter gatherer. And one of the things that they've learned about during their upbringing, maybe through experiences, whatever, is that bears are dangerous. In relation to humans. Like if a bear and a human get into a fight, a bear is going to win the fight. Let's say a grizzly bear, right? The grizzly bear's gonna win. So therefore, you can make a prediction. If I meet a grizzly bear and get into a tussle with it, I'm going to be killed. Probably. That's a prediction that we make. Now, that prediction is probably not going to be a problem at all in our life. We're never gonna see it as a problem unless. A certain clash comes about a clash in predictions and this starts to show up where um, threat response systems work and where they hinder us where they help us where they hinder us okay so let's say this person is a hunter gatherer and they're avoiding a certain patch of the woods because there's a family of bears that live there and it's no big deal right the whole tribe avoids that patch of woods but then times get a little bit tough and somebody in the tribe one day comes back with a load of fruit and people go wow that's great and then they share a bit of the fruit out and then more say look there's more fruit over here and then more people start to go and get fruit and you find out they're getting fruit from the patch of the woods that's got the bears in now they're coming back with the fruit and they're sharing some of the fruit with you but after a bit they're going you know, you're not pulling your weight around here and they start to take a dim view of you and all of that. They don't give you quite as much fruit. So you're a bit hungrier than the rest of them. And you see they're having a better life than you because they've got more fruit, but you want to go into the patch of the woods, but your threat response systems say no, because the prediction, the dominant prediction is not, I'll get fruit. The dominant prediction is I'll get killed. Okay. That's the dominant prediction. Now, this is where the clash comes about. Our systems, let's stick with the model of evolution. Let's say we evolved in a certain way to be well adapted to survive and thrive. Survive and thrive. Now, here's the thing. You can survive without thriving, but you can't thrive without surviving. So survival gets precedence every single time. But survival needs and thriving needs often come into contradiction. And this is where we can start to have problems in our life with fears. So if I'm working with my inspiration clients, where that problem comes about is where their fears are stopping them. So their survival-based things, their predictions around survival are getting in the way of their, um, the actions, the things they want to do to thrive. And they're looking at that and they're starting to wonder about those predictions or wonder what's wrong with them because they see other people being able to take the actions that let them thrive, right? So now we have a problem. I want to point out, I want to stress this. Nobody has a problem with fear until it creates a contradiction, usually between surviving and thriving, right? That's when it becomes a problem. That's when it becomes a thorny issue, a thing that somebody wants to change, okay? Um, until that point, it's just not. So there's a clash of predictions. I'll give another example of this. It's a ridiculous example. It's just one that I was given the other day. I often say to people, and this become relevant in a moment, I never step out in front of the tram that runs in the street in front of me. and never do it. Never step out in front of the tram. It's not an issue. It's not a problem. The fact that I make the prediction that it would destroy me is not a problem. I just don't step out in front of the tram, no big deal. But if I one day stepped out of my front door and I saw somebody step out in front of the tram and I had a moment of like, oh my God, but then the tram passed through them, right? And they are holding their hands up and the whole tram passes through them. And When it passes, they come out the other side and they're holding two massive bags of money. And they go, hey, hey, and off they go. And I'm like, what have I just seen? And right? I'm going to have massive amounts of cognitive dissonance, like a major prediction error has occurred. And then I see somebody else step in front of the tram, right? And the tram passes through them and it comes out the other side and they're stood there holding a couple of bags of money. Now I'm looking going, oh, right? I've got like, you know, we just lost cabin pressure. Something fundamental to my worldview and my beliefs about reality is looking questionable. Does this mean I can go woohoo and step right in front of that tram now? Like after all those years of thinking the tram is going to kill me and destroy me, I doubt that I'm going to see those two examples and just go striding in front of that tram because the ideas that i hold are not simply intellectual ideas they are embodied ideas this means they are connected into my very being and they move me so i might go to try and step in front of that tram, but i just cannot bring myself to do it because my prediction mechanism says nah that's gonna kill you right um i'll just give a super quick example another quick example of, of one of my fears i had a terrible fear of heights as well for most of my life couldn't go up a stepladder i'm not going to tell the whole story about how i transcended that but i transcended that and i didn't have it for years i don't really have it now right in fact i don't it hardly ever shows up occasionally it shows up one occasion when it showed up is last time i was in new zealand i was there with my family this is 2017 this is the last time my fear of heights showed up in a major way um but it was, we were about to cross a rope bridge going across the Buller Gorge in the South Island. And my wife and my two daughters, they strode out onto this rope bridge going across this gorge. And I was about to step onto the rope bridge when I noticed that the, not the guard rails, but the guard ropes, the ropes at the edge of the rope bridge, were at a level that was lower than my center of gravity, right? Right? And as soon as my brain clocked that, my predictions got rearranged and the prediction that if I stumbled and nudged into the rope, I would plunge to my death in the gorge, that prediction kicked in. As soon as that prediction kicked in, I was literally three strides from going onto the bridge. I'd had no fear or trepidation up until that point, but it was like somebody pulled a lever and locked my whole body. Boom. I couldn't move forward, right? My body locked. So I backed up. I could move away from it. I thought, this is ridiculous. If this was really dangerous, intellectual thought, they wouldn't leave this bridge open for probably hundreds of tourists a day to walk across. So it has to be safe. So I'm trying to make a different prediction. My my wife and daughter are halfway across the bridge now, my wife and two daughters. So I'm like, hmm. So I go to take a second go at it. Boom. But I cannot step onto that bridge. I mean it. I cannot step onto that bridge. I cannot override that embodied threat response prediction. It would not let me step onto that bridge in that moment. Right. So my fear of heights, which I used to not be able to go up a step ladder. It used to be everywhere. I couldn't go up like a couple of flights of stairs that had a you know that, that were that were open stairways I can deal with open stairways or anything like that. Had it, it had gone for a long time and here it was reappearing in this situation. Okay, now I didn't mean that my fear of heights came back. It was particular to that situation because of the prediction that I made. But interesting, nonetheless, safety threat. It could have been that there was abundance and gold and treasure on the other side, and my body wasn't going to let me cross that bridge. Okay, now of course. In that situation, I could have gone away, done some self work. There's a lot of stuff I I could have done. But in this moment, when it was happening, I just waited on this side of the bridge for my family to come back. So there's another example of uh, prediction and how predictions can come into conflict, but you'll get a certain prediction system that is gonna be dominant. And the one that is aligned with surviving will always predominate over the one that is aligned with thriving. We will pick survival over thriving. Again, because we can't thrive unless we survive, but we can survive without thriving. So that can create that imbalance. So what's it for? What's our threat response system for? For me, it's there to take care of us until we don't need it anymore. This is the conclusion I ultimately arrived at, right? Some people think their fears are keeping them safe, but is that really true? The truth of the matter is, is I don't need fear to not step in front of the tram. I don't fear the tram. I don't fear being killed by the tram. I never step in front of it. It's not an issue. Fear doesn't keep me safe from the tram. So why would I need it? I often say to people that, well, I used to, before the pandemic, I used to have people come and visit me in my workroom and my home. So I live here in Edinburgh in the West End. I'm right by an intersection across roads here. The tram goes across, cars come around, there's traffic lights. And I used to say to people, like if the subject of fear or threat came up, I used to say, Did you cross the road before you came in? Did you cross the intersection? And I say, Yes. I say, let me ask you, were you afraid when you crossed the road? I said, no. So when you're afraid you were gonna get hit by a car or something like that? No. Okay, so what how come? Well, you know, I didn't need to be, I just looked, at what I needed to look at and paid attention to what I needed to pay attention to when I crossed the road. And I said, That's right. Because fear, or I might have said, worry, you know, you're worried about crossing the road. I say, because fear and worry do not keep you safe. Knowledge and intelligence keeps you safe. You have the knowledge you need and the intelligence required to know you can take care of yourself crossing that road. So fear becomes redundant. Okay? I think this is a really important thing, or it was a really important thing for me because it helped me realize with regard to, say, martial arts, that the martial arts have said, look, this threat response thing's always coming. You're always going to be afraid, so channel it. But that's true until it's not, right? And it it, it solves the riddle of why have something, like why have this adrenaline dump that drives you to action but removes um, refinement from your motor skills, you know, makes you less coordinated, this kind of thing. Because it's a crude default system designed to take care of things until you have refined yourself beyond that point of needing it. So this is something that's true for me when it comes to martial arts, or maybe it's fear in general. I was saying this to my wife the other day. When I was younger and I was into martial arts, I used to be fearful at the idea of sparring people, right? Even if it was sort of only reasonably mid-level sparring, I, I would get fearful about it because I didn't want to get injured. I didn't want to get hurt. I didn't want to get all, all sorts of stuff. Now, I'm not afraid of sparring anymore. I'm not afraid of being hurt anymore. I'm not even afraid of being damaged. I would prefer not to. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh yeah, I'm now reckless about being damaged. No more than I'm reckless about stepping in front of the tram. I'm not reckless about it just because I don't fear it. It's just I've moved beyond fear to the point where I can allow my intelligence and my evaluation systems to take care of it. I've enriched my knowledge. I have a new grounding and a new set of understandings and knowledge about a bunch of things that enable me to operate differently in that situation. So this for me is, resolves the paradox of fear. Yes, it's there. It's there as a crude survival circuit and it serves us until it doesn't, it serves us until it hinders us. Fear always moves us away from things. Um, somebody has been an influence on me is Lisa Schwartz, who introduced me to the idea that, that threat response systems manifest as fight, flight, freeze. We've all heard that. Hide, avoid, submit. Most people have not heard that. Fight, flight, freeze, hide, avoid, submit. None of that is conducive to engagement with the world. All of that is conducive to escaping from, withdrawing from, at least some elements in the world. If we wish to be able to connect fully into life, to create fully with life, to be fully in the thriving zone, it is necessary that we develop understandings and consciousness that take us beyond our fears, whether they're strong fears or subtle fears, hence that program Beyond the Subtle Fears. Right? This is my bias. Some people will still say no. Some people will still say no fear is a friend. It's a friend until you don't need it. You ever had a friend who was great at a certain point in your life and then started holding you back, right? At some point, you might want to create a little bit more distance. Doesn't mean you cut that friend off entirely, but a little bit more distance. Doesn't mean you don't appreciate all that friend did for you, right? And the the times you've had, but you might want to create a little bit more distance. So let me recap Some of the ideas we've looked at in this episode. Fear is about threat response. Threat response is about prediction. Okay. We make predictions all the time based upon our understandings of the world. Do we want to move towards that? Do we want to move away from that? Do we want to do this with that? Do we want to do that with that? It's going to bring about good outcomes, bad outcomes. We've got this brain, this prediction machine. We're also evolved to survive and thrive. And survival, our threat response systems, they can be quite useful in survival context, not always perfect. As I say, you know, if you can develop quite high level skills in, say, fighting or combat arts, you get into a fight or a combat situation, you want to defend yourself, but the fear stops you having access to a lot of your skills. That doesn't seem like a good response. Okay. Um, So it's imperfect it's a crude imperfect system we can transcend it if we wish to thrive in the world we cannot be living in fear right living in fear stops us being able to engage it stops us being able to create nobody can be creative or create from a place of fear we cannot do it we do not get access to our best thinking we just get pushed into reaction and it is reaction that manifests as fight flight freeze hide avoid submit You'll see there's no create there. There's no engage there, right? That's not on the list. So we want to be able to transcend our fears. We want to be able to um, unpick those fears if we want to be able to live in the world as a creative force. How do you do it? How do we do it? Well, we can do this on a couple of levels, right? Or a few different levels. Or in the end, you can fine slice this probably in an infinite number of ways, but. The first mechanism that you want to do is, uh, I I just say right now, I've got this distinction when it comes to self-transformation, personal alchemy of what I call black path approaches and white path approaches. Black path approaches unpick, unravel things. White path approaches reconsolidate, put things together. In traditional alchemical terms, we call it solve a coagula. This is the formula. We want to dissolve things and resolve things. So... If we think about this in terms of our predictions and our beliefs, our rules about how things work, our ideas of things, every threat response has a recipe. It has a bunch of ideas that create predictions. So if we start to question those predictions, what we want to do is repattern them. We want to unravel the prediction that we're making. So for example, if I see enough people step in front of the tram and come out, The other side, millionaires and glowing and floating three feet off the ground or whatever. I I decide that I want some of that. I need to update my embodied prediction mechanism to say, yeah, that's what I'm going to get, right? To know that's what I'm going to get, to know that the tram is safe. I'm going to put a warning on this now, not that it needs to be put on, but um, I would not advocate anybody testing this hypothetical hypothesis, right? So just don't. But I'm just saying that if this was the case, okay. Now we might get a, a different situation. Somebody's hanging back from public speaking and they've got all these fears. Their prediction is that people will laugh at me. And if people laugh at me, that's absolutely terrible because it means that I will be rejected and right. So there's a threat pathway. The only way to dissolve that fear is to change the prediction. Okay, you can change a prediction like that at a number of different levels. A simplistic way is to is to help somebody connect with experiences where they have spoken and people have really welcomed and valued what they've had to say, and all of this. We're working at the level of trying to disprove the prediction. People will laugh at me, but there's a second prediction. If people laugh at me, that will be absolutely terrible because that's a second prediction that you can rewire, and that's usually the stronger place. It's like, well, even if people do laugh at me doesn't make any difference to who I am and how I am. Nothing about their laughter changes a thing about me at all, right? People can laugh for a variety of different reasons, right? What would that say about them if they laughed? That would be a very uncharitable thing. So there's a number of different ways of finding what I often call antidote beliefs or antidote renderings of reality. And it isn't about convincing yourself of those. It's about learning to embody those, the truth of them. So that once they're embodied in the way the original prediction was, the original belief was, the original organizational reality was, the fear dissolves. So you can do it bit by bit by bit. Now, remember, everything that we believe, all the sense that we make is about things in the world in relation to us, circumstances in the world in relation to us. So often the most powerful place we can transform our predictions is by transforming our understanding of self more than our understanding of circumstances. So deep self-transformation, right? Identity level work, this kind of thing, right? Dissolve away the old limiting ideas. Now you can do this on specific levels and you can do it on higher levels. Like one of the most powerful things that, um, that what we can do is start to see that our ideas about ourselves are fundamentally not true. They cannot be true. We can never be our ideas, right? I am not the ideas that I hold about myself. So as soon as you start to get a sense of self that is much more expansive and goes beyond your limiting ideas, right? A self that is unaffected and unchanged by small things. The level of importance placed upon those things goes down because you know they're not really a threat to you after all you know that you will be unaffected, unchanged, okay? I'll tell you a quick client story here. Um, I worked with this guy, Oh, this is about four or five years ago now, maybe let's say three years ago, No, maybe about five years ago, I think I was right the first time. This guy, he was involved in private security, that meant he was did six weeks on, six weeks off, shifts-wise. I think this is fairly standard in that area. So he's back in the UK for six weeks at a time, and he had a real issue, a real problem with social anxiety. In his work, he wasn't contributing his ideas or his thoughts. He wasn't speaking in a forthright way during meetings, and he needed to be able to do this, and he was holding back. This was the major problem, but this holding back showed up in all sorts of other areas of his life that he didn't talk about. He just talked about this work situation. So, um initially i attempted to approach this one way it wasn't really working out he didn't seem to be able to get in touch with what was going on within himself so my initial way of wanting to work with this was off the table i ended up doing what i would call a conversational hypnosis piece with him and it got into this point where i did this bit of dick and i've done this with other clients as well but this is one of the most dramatic times that i've done this or impact wise it's most dramatic i said to the guy um I want you to insult me, right? And he insulted me a bit. I said, okay. And I just wanted to model that I was fine with this. I said, now I want you to think some terrible things about me. Go into a state of mind where you're seeing the worst in me, right? Pick on me, criticize me, see me as having bad intentions, whatever it is. Just go into a a dark view of, of who I am. And he did this. Right. And I sat there and I made sure that my state was even during this. And I just kind of nodded along. I said, okay, you know, just notice what that's like. So now shake that up. Now go into um, an image of me where you see me as you see my best qualities. You see me as a person that you can value or, or look up to or whatever it will be. Right. Just take a really good view of me, see the best in me. Notice what it will be like to see the best in me. And he went into that state as well. Um, I said, okay, now, what were those two experiences like for you? And he's like, well, you know, in this one, it's like, I, I saw you as this. And it made me feel like I wanted to get away from you and all of this. And in this one, I could saw you like this. And it made me feel like I wanted to spend more time with you. I said, okay. So as your experience shifted, it shifted quite radically. Yeah. He said, yes. I said, I want you to know that as you shifted your experience, your perception, your judgments of me, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing changed about who I am and what I am and how I am. Absolutely nothing, right? And I said, and now I'm going to do the same for you. I'm going to give you the same gift, right? And I said, right now, I'm thinking... Terrible things about you, right? And you're just you. You're just sat here, right? Oh, and now I'm thinking some nice things about you. And here you are, just sat here in this same moment, and nothing has changed, right? Now, as I'm going through this piece, I'm doing a brief version here. I'm running this as a kind of conversational hypnosis piece. And the guys doing some processing. Now, I don't know how this is going to unfold at this point. I got an email from him the next day and he says, I don't know what happened in the session. I don't know what you did, but I went to the gym afterwards. And he said, it was really weird because I suddenly found myself talking to people and having conversations and enjoying them. And I never talked to anyone at the gym. I just keep myself to myself normally. And I, I was talking to other people. He said, it's like really weird because I didn't even realize I was doing it until I'd been doing it for a few minutes. And I didn't realize I was enjoying it until I noticed. Anyway, he was quite bemused by this. And then once he got back out to where he was working, doing the six weeks away, he sent me another long email just saying how different everything was, how he was enjoying being in meetings, uh, enjoying contributing to the meetings. Now, I'm not saying this to go look at my amazing... Conversational hypnosis stuff. I'm just saying this to go look, this is what happens when somebody's deep embodied sense making prediction system changes. They don't have to make any effort to experience the world differently. All right. Now, I will say, by the way, like uh, I've done that piece with a lot of people and I've often got impact with it, but it's not always the thing that makes the difference with somebody, and it's not always that fast and that dramatic, right? Because people have a sort of immune response that looks after their current understandings and their current predictions. In hypnosis, it's often referred to as the critical faculty, When I did what I did with him, his critical faculty didn't pick it apart and keep it out. So that was a good thing. It allowed it in and his inner creative faculty was able to create a new set of predictions right to overwrite those old ones that doesn't always happen that can't be guaranteed to happen when I'm working with people to help them make changes obviously I want to bring my skills to tilt it in favorable directions but it's always a co-creation between me and the client now we can kind of do this to an extent with ourselves we can start asking ourselves if we feel ourselves hanging back laying low fight flight freeze hide avoid submit what's the prediction I'm making here okay what's the prediction I'm making here What's the belief that I'm holding on to? The cherished truth, as I often call it. It's cherished because people really believe it's true and they really hold on to it. So that's one level we can do this on. Another level we can change on is just at the level of who we are and how we are. I shall now mention my transcending of fear of heights. I'll mention it right now. I said I wasn't going to tell the story, but I I am. Um... I'll tell a brief version of it. My fear of heights was a major thing. When I first did NLP training, formal NLP training, that was one of the things that I brought in, we were learning these techniques and I certainly brought it in when we did the fast phobia cure and I had somebody run the fast phobia cure on me for my fear of heights. And I can tell you, it made zero difference. That's not to dismiss the NLP fast phobia cure. I've used it a great many times with a great number of people and had huge impact, but for me, And my fear of heights, it did not scratch the surface, didn't dent anything. What did make a difference for me in my fear of heights was using the NLP method, spinning feelings, but I had to keep doing it. It was a management method. It wasn't a method that just wiped the issue out, but it really helped me out. So I had this tool spinning feelings. That meant as soon as I felt the threat response coming up, the fear, the sensation, I was able to intervene and do some things creatively with it that would help it settle down and help me be able to be where I needed to be. Maybe that was on a balcony or going up an open stairway or whatever it would be. And I used this management technique for a long time until one day my threat response system just didn't kick off. I found myself going across a rope bridge again between two trees. So it was probably about you know, 20 feet up or something, two huge trees. And I found myself going across this rope bridge. It was a rope bridge i had been across in the past and had to manage my fears around. But this time I was going across it and I'm like, wow, I'm not having to do anything. What happened? Well, it coincided with a period of coaching that I was having from somebody I've mentioned many times before, Steve Chandler. And Steve, we never addressed my fear of heights. Never got mentioned. I didn't look at my specific predictions around heights or anything like that. But what we did do during that coaching period was a lot of work on me, my self-image, how I experienced myself in the world, how I saw myself in the world. So when that fear disappeared, the reason it disappeared is because it just didn't fit with who I had become. When it didn't fit, it wasn't there anymore, right? So really, actually, what had changed was my perception of self had changed and really my fear of death had changed. Because underneath the fear of hide, this is a fear of death, right? It's not just like, oh, it's like I'm going to fall down and die, right? That's probably what had changed. Although that doesn't explain why I had the fear response uh, going across the Bullock Gorge Bridge. So that hypothesis might not stand. I don't specifically know what changed in my self-image. That something changed in my sense of self, in my predictions about me, that made the threat go away. Even though we never dealt with that specific threat, so you can pick individual situations of threat. You can go into those. You can find out what the predictions are, what the organisations of reality are, and you can um, you can dissolve those, right? And you can allow new ones to emerge that are more in service of the thriving that you want to do now that you know, actually, do you know what? It's all right. I'm going to survive anyway. Okay. Go back to my client, my private security client, six weeks on, six weeks off. His realization was I will survive anyway, right? The thing I've been fearing isn't that much of a threat. That was what changed for him. You can work on another level. You can start to work on the level of the nature of threat responses, right? The, The nature of threat responses or the sense of who you are. Some people, when they transcend their ego, they're like, well, you know, some people will have a psychedelic experience and they feel so connected to the world. They don't see that isolated self that will survive or die. They're much more nebulous in who they are and diffused into the world. They are a part of everything and everything will continue. So they don't need to hold on so much to themselves. Right? So there's a number of different levels you can work this on. I like to work it on different levels. I've done a lot of stuff around dissolving myself, dissolving the ego, transcending quote unquote, the ego. I'm not transcended my ego. I've just got an ego that knows it's an ego, right? That doesn't take itself so seriously. That doesn't place so much importance upon itself. That means I don't have such a tight grip holding on to perpetuating who I think I am so I can be freer of fear. And that enables me to move more fluidly in the world. It enables anyone to move more fluidly in the world. All right. So I don't know if there's something I missed there. There probably is. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Final message I want to send to you is this. If you have survived in the world up until now, you probably got some pretty good skills in place and you can probably now allow yourself to start moving to the next level. You can probably risk, although it's not that much of a risk, I promise you, letting go of some of your fears. If you want to process those through, get rid of them. Of course, that can be done in a variety of different ways. Um, I would suggest that if you want to get into really thriving, that's where you need to go. You need to go to that next level of living more fearlessly because you want to bring yourself into creative engagement with the world. Nobody can create from fear. That does not connect us into our creative selves. Right. it disconnects us from that right this can be done and it is necessary to be done if you really do want to thrive um and when i want to say thrive i don't mean just get good things there are plenty of people that do very well in their careers and make lots of money and they're doing the right things according to the context they fit in and they're still not really thriving because they're not really having uh an enriched or fulfilling life because they're caught up in fear okay so I said at the beginning, I wasn't necessarily going to answer this, or I think I said at the beginning, fear, friend, or foe. I'm not going to say definitively it's friend or it's foe, right? I think my bias says it's friend up to a point. It's friend maybe when you really, really need it, right? Maybe, but if you want to thrive in life, generally speaking, it's probably not friend, it's probably foe. Anyway, I'd be curious to hear your own thoughts on this. If you want to share them via the comments on the Substack, you need to go subscribe to Agents of Everything. It's a free subscription. You can share your comments, your thoughts there. And beyond that, I look forward to when we next connect.